The race to 5G is on, and the battle for talent is getting fierce. Welcome to 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, a podcast dedicated to helping you face the future workforce head on. Navigate this challenging talent landscape with innovative strategies to attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. Only here on 5G Talent Talk with Carrie Charles, CEO of Broadstaff Talent Solutions. And thank you for joining me today on 5G Talent Talk. I'm so glad you're here. And I'm very, very happy to interview the CEO of DataBank, Raul Martinet. So nice to have you on the show, Raul. Thank you for having me, Carrie. It's great to be here. Yes, I've been wanting to, uh, to have you as a guest for quite a while, actually. So I'm excited about this interview. First of all, I want to learn more about you. And then we're going to talk about the DataBank story. So, Raul, tell me about your journey, how you got to where you are today. And I want to maybe a full story in there somewhere. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's a long story or it's a long journey. I'll make it a short story. Let's put it that way. But no, I've I've been in the space for almost over 25 years and kind of got into it in a bit of a happenstance type of way. I was uh, working on Wall Street, believe it or not, doing foreign exchange trading, was not happy with it and was looking for like an entrepreneurial type of venture. And I had a friend that was starting a reseller. And this is in the mid nineties, kind of before the commercial internet. And when kind of things like voice and data were actually big things. So anyway, I joined him in 94, 95. And kind of that's how I ended up in the space. And it was right around the time of the advent of the commercial internet. And it was basically a CLEC. So I started on the telecom side. And it's a business that I was there for 13 years in and out of the dot-com bubble, which was uh, an interesting experience. And you know, a lot of the new people that we hire, I always ask them, you know, where were you in uh, 1999? They're like, oh, we were four, you know, so <laughs> right. the collective memory around that experience has disappeared. But in any event, well, Sold the business in 2007, and that's kind of we raised venture capital at that or private equity uh, money at that time, and that's kind of what I've been doing since then is basically running businesses for sponsors in the space. Went from telecom to ran a fiber business in Dublin for a couple of years, Ireland, wow. which was an interesting experience. I commuted to Dublin from New York for two years. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and then you know ran a hosting business called Voxel, which was a great experience and kind of really pivoted my my trajectory kind of out of telecom and fiber and more into cloud and data center. That was, ran that for a couple of years. We sold that to Internap. Then I actually, I went off on my own and actually did a bunch of business in sub-Saharan Africa, doing working for the government of Cameroon on a, a variety of projects. Again, too long of a story to, in terms of how that happened, but it was great experience in terms of seeing how the internet evolves in kind of a more developing continent like Africa. And then juxtaposing that with my experience in the dot-com bubble. And it was one of these things where it's like, oh, I know what's going to happen because we've seen how these networks, how this internet infrastructure evolves. But in any event, did that for a couple of years. And then I ran a data center business in the New Jersey era. We exited out as well. And that's kind of when I got into reconnected with Digital Bridge, right? Mark Ganzi and I have actually known each other for 20 plus years. My partner in my telecom company was a partner with him in their first venture. So I met Mark and Alex Gelman and a lot of the other folks kind of socially. And uh, obviously they were in towers. I was more in, in data center and cloud. So our pads weren't really connecting. But then obviously when he started Digital Bridge with Ben and they were going to invest across the whole digital infrastructure sector, including data centers, that's where my experience was relevant. So 
I joined Digital Bridge at the end of 2015. At the time, they had invested in a couple businesses in the tower space and Extinet, which is small cells, and I'd yet to invest in the data center space. So I joined a, a team, Mike Faust, who was the founder and CEO of Digital Realty, and John Mock, who was an investment banker in the space. And we were tasked with, all right, how do we invest in the data center sector? So we identified DataBank in uh, 2016 and acquired that business then. Uh, and then I worked on the Vantage transaction, which is another digital bridge portfolio company. We closed that in the spring of 2017. And then I transitioned to be the CEO of DataBank. So when we acquired the company, it was a relatively small platform. It was you know, six data centers in three markets. We bought the business for $320 million. And, you know, today we're one of the largest private data center platforms in the US. You know, we have about 70 assets in 27 markets. And we just announced a recapitalization of the business at close to a $6 billion valuation. So it's been quite a quite a evolution over the last five years. And it's been a great experience. Wow. So much has happened in such a short period of time. I'm just curious, what do you feel really drove that growth in such a short period of time? Yeah, no, absolutely. One thing in our space, which is very similar across the digital infrastructure sector is access to capital, right? I mean, we voracious consumers of capital, especially if we're growing, it's paradoxical. The more you grow, the more capital you have to deploy because you have to build obviously these data centers. And that business model is we deploy a lot of the capital up front and then customers lease that over decades, really. And that's how we earn a return on that investment. But what it means is as you're growing, you need to spend a lot of capital to build those facilities. So, so I think it's, you know, that piece has been unquestionably key part of our success. And then the other part, would, you know, is execution. I mean, in this space, no different than any of the sector, right? It's a very competitive space. There's a lot of companies doing what we're doing. There's a lot of bigger companies doing what we're doing, right? And I've always been a believer that, you know, best in class execution ultimately is the differentiator between companies that make it and companies that don't, right? When markets are doing well, like in the bubble era or even, you know, five years ago, right? the rising tide lifts all the boats, right? And it doesn't really matter if you're best in class, but as things get a little tougher, as the market gets a little more competitive, as it's no longer such a new thing, then all of a sudden the wheat gets separated from the chaff and the companies that are the best executing businesses, in my view, are the ones that survive and thrive. Yes, yes. And who executes? People, right? And I know that we're having so many challenges right now, you know, with workforce and attracting and engaging and retaining talent, you know, hanging on to our people. So what have been some strategies that has worked for DataBank that's really helped in this great resignation and also the ability to attract key people? That's a great question. And, you know, it's certainly a top of mind question for all business executives at this point, right? I mean, Ultimately, when you think about people, right, think about ourselves, like, why do we want to come to work during the day? Why do we want to spend 8, 10, 12 hours at work working, right? And, and ultimately, of course, compensation is a big part of that. And you always have to have a competitive package for folks that are performers, but it's way beyond that, right? It's really about the culture in the business. And it's really about the purpose that you can kind of give people for spending all that time that, you know, during the day with you, right? So a data bank, and that's something that I've been very focused on my entire career, right? Just quickest, you know, going back to the, the bubble era, right? In the bubble era, 
everyone was doing well, right? Everyone was raising capital. Everyone was quote unquote, you know, millionaires on paper, right? And right. things mm-hmm. just rose, rose and rose. And all of a sudden, you know, it changed in months, right? And you had this, obviously this collapse, right? And then this period after the dot-com bubble, which I like to call the Batan death march, because if you weren't able to survive on your own two feet, you didn't make it. There was just no more capital. And at that point, you know, is when we went through a significant retrenchment and we had to take the company, you know, from 400 employees to 80 employees in nine months, which is not fun. And then we had, you know, we were wiring the World Trade Center, believe it or not, and it was going to be our big revenue opportunity. That, that kind of obviously disappeared literally. Right. And all of a sudden we were faced with like existential death, right. Where, you know, you had 12 months of runway and because you, everyone was EBITDA positive negative back then. And yet you had to figure out how to get out of that wilderness. Right. And ultimately we gave, it's about the people that you have and about the culture that you build. Right. So that experience definitely kind of uh, made an imprint on me that figuring out how to attract talent, how to bring it into an organization, how to nurture it, and then how to create an environment where that top talent really wants to thrive is the key to kind of success, right? And there's a couple, you know, along the way you pick up, you know, different tools, right? And you get introduced to different things, right? And everyone has, I mean, there's so many different management books and there's so many different programs and approaches and all that stuff. And in my view is, you just got to pick something that works for you and you got to pick something that, you know, you can really embrace and that you can get passionate about because otherwise it becomes fake. Right. And you know, I got introduced a long time ago to a book called uh, top grading actually still on my desk. All right. It was written on, that was my first, one of my key board members from way back yonder introduced me to it. And it's a great book because it's about this idea around a players and I, and everyone's and the word a players now got, into the vernacular out there, but there's a definition, right? And the definition of an A player is the top 10% of the talent of the given job description at the given salary range. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because the world is a bell curve and ultimately like sports and like artists and like anything, right? You know, there's some people that really perform well while other people don't perform as well. And the idea of that book is, listen, you have to really focus making your entire organization A players and identifying them, recruiting them in, and then, you know, nurturing them and growing them and having them thrive in your, in your company. So that's something that's stuck with me over, you know, the last 20 years. And we talk about that a lot. We really try to think about what it means to have A players on your team. And part of that is that, you know, the culture piece, which is something that you can do it two ways, right? You do it kind of the organic way, right? Where you simply focus around hiring great talent, bringing them in, letting them, you know, imprint their personality into the business. And you kind of get there over time, but it's slow. And, you know, when I got the data bank, we had just done a couple acquisitions and then we had you know, followed up all with one that we did when I just got here. So in 2019, we had, you know, this kind of set of tribes in the company, right? You had different companies and they all had lineage and they all had their history and folks in those companies had their view on things. And, you know, and it, and it was obvious that, you know, we weren't hitting on all cylinders and wanted to try to create a unified culture, a unified language really for the company. And that's what we did. You know, I hired a, a consultant who is someone that I worked with at Info Highway and now works with us today. Is, runs our marketing and culture group, JP LaCour. 
And really he had spent, you know, after we had worked together, he had spent a long time kind of thinking about brand and doing brand engagements. And then really a brand is, is, is one side of the coin while culture is the other side, right? You can't have an authentic brand without an authentic culture and vice versa, right? Think of any kind of iconic company out there, right? They, they have kind of a personality to them, right? And what we had, like I said, at Databank was just too many personalities. So we went through this really arduous year-long process to basically try to understand who we were. In our case, we used a method based on archetypes, which are basically characters that everyone identifies with, like a hero or a sage or an explorer or a magician, right? And everyone exhibits these characteristics to some extent. And really, it was, that was kind of a way for us to like, you know, understand the DNA of our people, right? And then we identified our dominant characteristics. Every characteristic has positive aspects, and it also has these shadow aspects, right? You know, mm-hmm. people that, you know, are really hard chargers and heroes and want to rescue customers, right? They're also the types that snap at people, right? Because they're, <laughs> they're just so intense about things like that, right? And then, you know, we went through a, a process where we had some group sessions to understand that and surfaced that, did some surveys. And and ultimately, it boiled down to the top 30 people in the company. And I remember we, you know, we got into over a course of uh, six months at a couple of times. And we really talked about like what was going right and really what was going wrong. And who did we want to be as a leadership team in that company? And we call those leadership behaviors. We boiled it down to a set of four that you know, are kind of our guiding principles in terms of like how we treat each other and how we treat our peers and our subordinates and our customers even, right? And it's painful, right? Because what happens when you do things like that is some people don't fit in, right? And that's the other part of building culture, which is it's okay if it doesn't work out for everyone. In fact, it's probably necessary because almost by definition, if you don't have any of that kind of change occurring, then why did you think it was a problem in the first place, right? And took a while. And at this point now, we have a, a really kind of defined identity, I think, within Databank. We have a way that we treat ourselves, we treat our customers. When we hire new people now, we tell them about, hey, this is the Databank way, and here's what our cultural attributes are, and our leadership behaviors, and our cultural cornerstones. And People have to, you know, again, embrace that and think that's a good thing, right? And I think that really makes a difference. I really do. I I really think it makes a difference in companies where you have thousands of customers and tens of thousands of touch points every month with customers. How do you make it so that that service technician or that data center technician or that knock technician presents a great impression, right? Think about your own experience large organizations that you respect, right? In terms of that engagement, right? And that, again, to me, boils down to delivering, you know, to building something that is really a reflection of the people within the organization and and kind of a common acknowledgement that, you know, this is the way we're going to move forward. Bro, you are so passionate about this. And everyone says it starts from the top, right? And I was writing notes as you were talking, but one thing that you said, I think you said it a couple of times was, the word nurture. And that is key, absolutely key. So can you talk just a little bit more about that, about how you nurture that talent, especially in today's world, when the generations are very different, there's generational conflict, and there's lots going on, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's another great question. And it's constant evolution, right? But look, I think number one, it starts with what the A players, right? And 
again, there is a way that you can identify people that are in that top 10% across a certain set of skills, right? And you want to attract those people into your organization. Once you get them in there, then obviously performance happens and people start to get into managerial roles. So I mean, so what we've done is we've invested in leadership and development. So we have a dedicated leadership and development organization, right? And we try to think about like the largest groups within the company. In our business, it's the data center operations. We have a lot of folks that manage those 65 data centers and take care of our 3,000 plus customers, right? So we've come up with a structured training program for that group from a data center tech, you know, one through three and a data center manager and a regional manager, right? So I think part of it is having some type of formal kind of relevant topical type of training program where you can kind of objectively tell people, you know, how they're doing and where they need to work on and what they're doing well at, right? So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is trying to figure out a way to surface, especially in a larger organization, surface kind of the reality. Right. I think the challenge with these larger companies is that you just, as a CEO or as a level one, you just don't know what's happening five rows below you. Right. Again, everyone's really busy. So, how do you do that? Right. So, you just have to come up again with a set of things that gives you some type of pulse there. Right. So, you know, number one, we do two all employee surveys every year. They're based back on that cultural program that we did where we measure ourselves across a number of, of areas, right? And these set of questions we've been asking for about two years now, oh, actually three years at this point, since 2019. So we can see how we rank on a scale of one to five, right? And then how that changes over time. And during those questions, by the way, we allow people to obviously have open-ended comments, okay? We take all that information. We are... JP and his partner, Paul, they kind of distill it. And then, you know, what we do is we eliminate any identifying kind of remarks where someone called someone out specifically as a name. We don't delete anything and we publish it. Wow. We let everyone read it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Wow. That's powerful. Just the way you have to deal with people. Because again, we don't want to be dealt with in any other way other than transparency and the truth, right? You know, it's painful sometimes to read these things, right? Because you put so much energy into what you do and then you, you hear about it experience. And obviously what you do is you take that experience and it gives you clues over how to change, right? But so we do a similar thing with management. We actually have twice a year, an L1, L2 meeting where the top managers in the company come together. And we now have, again, based on our kind of cultural attributes and performance attributes, kind of a, a kind of a performance matrix, right? And then what we'll do is we'll have the L2 folks tell the rest of the group there how they rank their people that report to them. Mm, brilliant. Yeah. There's nothing better than sunshine. Mm -hmm. There's nothing better than that open form to kind of, again, uh, help identify scenarios where someone might be doing a really good job of reporting up, but might be challenged reporting sideways, right? Or reporting the peers. And again, you got to figure out ways to like get to that truth within a large organization. And that then surfaces your, your talent, right? It becomes clear at that point. Obviously, you know, you got a whole setup. Do they know the job, right? Do they have good analytic skills? Do they have good technical skills if that's what they need, right? You know, so they got to, you got to check, check, check all those boxes. But then there's this kind of squishy box around, you know, do they have the right stuff in terms of 
building a high performance team in terms of really kind of making an impact, not just within their department, but outside their department, right? Because that's what I see the best managers make an impact outside their department in addition. And that's how you kind of surface those. So, and that's the fun part of the job, frankly, right? Because you get to see people develop into new roles and you get to see them grow from a professional perspective and grow from an economic perspective. And again, that's, you know, think about yourself. That's what you want out of your job, right? You want the opportunity to learn and to advance and to collaborate and work with people that you respect and care about and to deliver a product or a service that you're proud of, right? And if you can kind of do all that, then of course, we all want to make money and we all love making money, but that (laughs) just makes everything so much sweeter. Yes, yes. So, Raul, I'm curious about your insights on the next stage of evolution for the internet. And obviously, there's the you know, convergence of digital infrastructure. So I just like your view. Yeah. On that. No, listen, this is a great question. And when I think about this question, again, going back to I started at dial-up, right? And I think about the internet as kind of like a large-scale structure. It's kind of like the universe. It's like a galaxy, right? It's got all these pieces and it moves. And it has a set of rules also that end up kind of occurring, right? And you know, the internet, it's amazing. It's been around 25 years. At this point, obviously, no one can envision it not being here because you can't live your life without it in today's world. And it's only been a blink of the eye when it comes to like even economic history, right? And ultimately, right, you know, the last 10 years, you know, was really, if you think about the most impactful feature in my view of the last 10 years was the kind of the advent of public cloud, right? And that would also coupled with kind of the widespread use of mobile data and application, right? If you think about 10 years ago, 2012, the iPhone came out in 2007. A lot of people didn't really adopt it until the early 2000s. And in the early 2000s is when public cloud as a thing started to occur, right? And now fast forward to today, and obviously you have ubiquitous mobile uh, communications and you have this dynamic around public cloud where we have a set of locations that are incredibly important. And when I think about this question, by the way, I also think about it from the perspective of, you know, what data bank is doing. So the next 10 years, in my view, are going to be as dramatic of a change in internet architecture as the last 10 years, right? And, you know, I think where we go, and it is true, we already know what it is called the edge, right? And what I, again, I like to remind people go back 10 years and everyone was talking about public cloud 10 years ago, everyone, right? So if you go back into a little time capsule, 2012, everyone's talking about public cloud. Amazon's out there already. They've been out there for five, six years at that point, but you had all these other players join and, you know, Voxel and and GoGrid and SoftLayer and, you know, Microsoft was just starting to launch and all. So it was unclear what this public cloud thing was going to be. And now fast forward today, and it's the dominant feature of internet infrastructure from a data center perspective, from a fiber perspective, from a networking perspective, right? And I think the next 10 years, you're going to see the internet really decentralized and really go back a little bit to where we started, right? Where as an old dog, I always like telling old stories, right? Which is like 20 years ago, every office I went into in America had a data center. It was called the computer room, right? I mean, duh, right? And what's yep. happened mm-hmm. is moved to a small number of public cloud locations and multi-tenant data centers like Databank. And I think 
it's good that pendulum's going to swing back and we're going to have a much more decentralized. So it's going to be similar to the past, but very different, right? And that is going to be the defining feature along with 5G and what I think is the emergence of the real-time internet, right? I think in five to 10 years, this idea around latency, it's going to be a distant kind of idea, right? Because with 5G, with this decentralization, you now have the ability or will have the ability to have real-time applications and real-time kind of use cases that you can't have today. And again, that to me is pretty exciting because it means that the next 10 years will be as much of change as the last 10 years. So Raul, I want to ask you, so what is your why? Like what makes you just, obviously you jump out of bed every morning, probably at 4 a.m. You have so much energy, but <laughs> what is it that you drives you to, to do what you do and to work so hard and take care of your people the way you do? I mean, what drives you? Well, I think number one, I came from the ground up, right? So in those early years, we struggled a lot right? It was very painful. So to me, it's an absolute kind of, you're so happy that you can get to the spot that you get to. So, and then ultimately that goes back to, you finally get there. It's like, do something about it, right? It's like, do something about it, create an environment for what you can change, right? Where people can, you know, have a really a positive experience, right? So yeah. dealing with people within the company and dealing with our customer base, that's ultimately what gets me up in the morning because that's fun. I really enjoy working with my coworkers and my partners really enjoy obviously winning, right? Because it's, it's, <laughs> right. it's you know, set your sight on a goal and be able to accomplish it as a team, right? And get there. And then it's great when you get, you know, great feedback from customers, right? In terms of, hey, you guys are a really good company. You guys deliver a great service. And it's a pleasure to do business with you, right? I mean, so that's, I think those are the three things that ultimately make it worthwhile, right? And investing all that time and energy. Yes. And Ro, I've heard so many wonderful things about you. And I spoke to someone once who was a leader at DataBank, and she said that your mentorship mattered so much to her and made all the difference. And so I, I was just really looking forward to this interview. I want to thank you. This has just been phenomenal. I've taken so many notes that that I'm going to implement here at Broadstaff. But before we leave, I'd like to know, I'm sure everyone wants to know, how can we find out more about open jobs at DataBank? Well, on our website, of course, right? You know, we have an About Us page and then there's a career center there. We're looking for great people that really want to be passionate about what we do and build a great business, right? So would love as many folks as possible. DataBank builds A players. And you will have a positive experience there. I love it. I have so much value in this interview. So, Raul, thank you. This has been a pleasure. You are a, and just an extraordinary leader. And DataBank is an extraordinary place to work. So thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for listening to another informative episode of 5G Talent Talk, brought to you by RCR Wireless News, Telecom Careers, and Broadstaff Talent Solutions. As we advance into the future, we promise to bring you the resources you need to navigate this ever-changing landscape of 5G to help you attract, retain, and engage people in this new world of work. To access the show notes or leave a review, visit broadstaffglobal.com. Until next time.